From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, our first interview with John Hickenlooper now that the former governor is the Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate. You know what hasn't changed for him since moving from the primary to the general? Being attacked by opponents on health care. First, it was that he wasn't going far enough towards universal coverage. Now it's that he's going too far. Still, he stands by Obamacare. I mean, we have 2.4 million Coloradans that have pre-existing medical conditions, and they have protections as part of the Affordable Care Act. Then, wildland firefighting during a pandemic, and a nurse who never expected to become a marijuana expert. I was extremely, extremely judgmental about cannabis. What changed her thinking and how she became a go-to source for people in need. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We begin with John Hickenlooper, our first interview with him of the general election. The former governor won Colorado's Democratic U.S. Senate primary this week. Yesterday, we heard from the man he's trying to unseat, Republican incumbent Cory Gardner. With Hickenlooper, I talked campaign blunders, health care, and taxes. Governor, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure to be back on. Senator Gardner and the GOP were running ads against you before the primary, uh, highlighting how you've previously said you didn't think you'd make a good senator, picking up on your ethics violations, being held in contempt by the Ethics Commission. Do do you enter the general election as a wounded candidate? (laughs) No, no. When you win an election by 20 points, it's hard to say um, that you're wounded. <laughs> but let me, let me be clear. The Republicans and the dark money Republican groups from Washington, and Senator Gardner has been uh, vocal in support of these efforts, they've only just begun. They're going to keep attacking me. They're going to twist and distort my record. They're going to attack you know, my reputation every way they can, because you know, Senator Gardner really can't run on his record. I mean, he supported Donald Trump 100% of the time. Uh, he has frequently uh, reiterated the fact that he supports the lawsuit to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, he doesn't think universal background checks really work. I mean, I can go down the whole list, but we expect the attacks just to continue. And, you know, Coloradans showed last night that they're not going to buy into this defamation uh, and, and, and assassination of character. Among the successes that Senator Gardner is likely to point to in the general election, helping get the Great American Outdoors Act passed, helping bring the Bureau of Land Management headquarters to Grand Junction, Space Command to Colorado Springs, equipment to fight COVID-19, for which he was praised by Governor Polis. It's not that he has nothing to run on, I think, as you suggested earlier. What's your message to say he's not right for Colorado right now? Well, I think that the, his record on health care is abysmal. I mean, he supports the lawsuit that would end the Affordable Care Act for all intents and purposes. He, and, he actually wouldn't be pinned down on the question of the Trump administration's brief with the Supreme Court to dismantle the ACA. Well, he said before he does, so maybe he's changed and, and hasn't figured out how to, how to talk about it yet. But, I mean, we have 2.4 million Coloradans that have pre-existing medical conditions. And they have protections as part of the Affordable Care Act. If Senator Gardner wants to maintain those protections and doesn't support that lawsuit, was he willing to say that to you? Uh, He was not. Again, I think if you want to run on your record, 
lay out what what things you do support. Did, did you discuss the core act with him? Which is, you know, and again, I, I'm a the land and water, water conservation fund is is important, and I, I support that bill. But the core act is 400,000 acres of Colorado land, some of which, you know, at least I've been led to believe that that Senator Gardner thinks should be sold or leased off to the highest bidder. Again, I'm not sure that's where most Coloradans are in terms of public lands. In my conversation with Senator Gardner, he characterized your position on health care as socialized medicine. Does that label fit your health policy? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I just came through a primary where I was attacked for not supporting, you know, a larger government involvement in health care. I've been, I think, very consistent, and I think you know this, that I believe we build on the foundations of the Affordable Care Act. Not perfect, but I think we can improve it. I think we need to get to universal coverage, and probably the fastest, most effective way to do that is by creating a public option of some sort, a a sliding scale public option. But what we really got to focus on is controlling the cost of health care. You know, there's a runaway inflation in prescription drugs, in insurance premiums, in in co-pays. I mean, that's where, once we get to universal coverage, that should be our highest priority. It was a bumpy primary for you. I mean, the, the ethics ruling, the ethics commission holding you in contempt, your answer that every life matters when asked about Black Lives Matter, also video of you emerged likening political life to ancient slavery. You apologized for those things, I'll say. Uh, and then... Just before the primary, photos of you emerged in an indigenous headdress and clothed as a native woman, which was apparently penance for losing a hunt. Do we now have a solid pattern of insensitivity, John Hickenlooper? No, I don't think so. I, again, I think the election demonstrated that people know who I am. And if at times I misspeak or you know, unintentionally say the wrong thing. I'm not saying that's a good thing. What I'm saying is that people know that I have worked with this state. Uh, We were 40th in job creation. We became the number one economy in the country. Uh, We got to almost 95% health care coverage. We we reduced the number of people without coverage by by more than two-thirds. We go down that list of of accomplishments that, that we've done, Again, I am a known quantity. I have a relationship with the people of Colorado. And, you know, the, these political attacks, I don't think are going are to sell in Colorado. Our Benta Berkland spoke with an indigenous woman who was in tears as she described how that photo of you dressed as a Native woman made her feel. Um, would you care to share just a few words about that? Sure. And this was a you know, long-standing traditional hunt. Um, the headdress was placed on my head by the hunt chief, uh, Chief Shoyo. Had I not allowed him to do that, uh, he would have been offended. Uh, it, it was a very complicated situation, but, you know, that, that she would feel uh, such anguish about it is, is certainly not, uh, not good, not, you know... Uh, it's certainly nothing that I would, uh, uh, well, it's nothing that I would ever do again, recognizing that I could, would cause her uh, that kind of, of anguish. 
I'd like to play something from voter Tyler Higaki, a 27-year-old Air Force veteran who voted for your opponent in the Democratic primary, Andrew Romanoff. I feel that the establishment Democrats have shoehorned another lesser of two evils scenarios. And I get the sense that they're relying on the whole vote blue no matter who. And frankly, I'm just I'm sick of the guilt trip. How do you respond to Romanov supporters who are bummed out and not sure that you're the guy? Well, I'm going to reach out. And, uh, and, you know, Andrew Romanoff, when he called, was very gracious. And he said he would work with me to unify the party in the effort to make sure that we defeat Cory Gardner in November. I'm going to reach out to every Coloradan, but I'm, I'm going to reach out to every supporter of Andrew Romanoff and, and make the case that, you know, I've supported universal health care, uh, that health care is a right, not a privilege, my entire life. I believe that climate change is a grave existential threat to the planet, the greatest one we've ever faced. And we've got a very detailed plan of how we get to zero emissions by 2050. You know, I need to go out and talk to those supporters of Andrew Romanoff and really listen to them and hear them and hopefully persuade them that we agree on far more than than what we disagree on. Okay, we got a little pushback from the left. How about some pushback from the right. Uh, you, you think <laughs> President Trump has been bad for the country, you think. Uh, I just want to play this from former GOP state party chair Dick Wadhams. In terms of the Trump uh, agenda, listen, I, I don't disagree that Trump is a liability. But I also know this, that um, when we get to specific issues in terms of the Trump uh, record, the tax cuts, if Hickenlooper wants to repeal the tax cuts, he is imposing a tax increase, not only on individual taxpayers up and down the economic ladder, but also on small businesses across this country. That's one of the reasons why this economy exploded. If elected, would you seek to undo the Trump tax cuts? Well, I think those tax cuts, I mean, 83 percent of the benefit of those tax cuts went to the 1 percent wealthiest Americans. Basically, what they did in the tax cut, even before COVID-19, they transferred over the course of, of 10 years uh, over $1.5 trillion of debt that our children and grandchildren are going to have to pay. On top of that, after COVID-19 came in and President Trump poo-pooed it, you know, Senator Gardner didn't say anything, but it's not going to be a big deal. We don't have to worry about it. Look at how COVID-19 has hit the United States compared to what's happened in the rest of the world and look at the consequences to our economy. And the relief that has been provided, I mean, it's notorious that it's, it has not gone to the smallest of small businesses. Uh, it has largely gone to large companies, businesses that had other resources. I mean, over 100 publicly traded companies received part of that, uh, that first CARES Act. You know, I grew up in small business. Uh, when I first opened my first restaurant, I'd lie awake at night trying to figure out how to make payroll. This is an experience that I don't think Mitch McConnell ever had. I don't think Cory Gardner's had it. And I don't think Donald Trump's has it. They seem immune. Uh, they, they seem oblivious to the struggles and the hardship that this has created for small business. I want to be part of going back and changing that. Well, I think that the point Wadhams is making, though, is that a reversal of the Trump tax cuts, uh, though you see them as being quite uneven, would affect small business. So are, are you saying that you would or would not undo the Trump tax cuts? What I'm saying is that I am, I am going to go to bat for small businesses in the U.S. Senate. But uh, yes or no on the at, tax cuts? <laughs> well, I, I, again, I'm not going to say that we'll automatically get rid of everything, but 
a large part of of those tax cuts went to you know large corporations uh the wealthiest individuals who really didn't need them and i think certainly that those parts of the of the tax cuts should certainly be repealed uh, so many of those people not only didn't ask them but were to some level or another you know were uncomfortable uh with those tax cuts at that time and how clearly they favored only the wealthiest and largest corporations. To what extent do you see a victory in Colorado as related to switching Trump voters to vote for you? You know, I think that that's not the approach. I mean, we're not going to make this just about Trump. This is a, a campaign against Cory Gardner. Uh, it's a comparison of what Senator Gardner and I stand for and who will speak up to power, you know, when it begins to uh, distort and challenge our democracy, uh, when the very values that this country is based upon, you know, the common decency of, of the American people, when that begins to get compromised. And we're not just talking about the, you know, the lawsuit against the Affordable Care Act. I mean, what's going on in Russia right now, where they're providing a bounty for the killing of American soldiers I mean, I just don't even know what to say. And yet I haven't seen Senator Gardner really call the president out on this, saying, hey, you cannot continue to deal with Russia as if nothing's happened. Uh, and does, I know that Senator Gardner to... has a bill that would list yeah. Russia as a, you know, a terrorist, you know, in alliance with terrorist countries and terrorist activities. But I don't think that's enough. You know, my argument is this is the way Washington has worked for too long, where politicians make their decisions based on staying in office. I want to go and change Washington. Governor, thanks so much for being with us. You bet. Anytime. Thank you, Ryan. John Hickenlooper won the Democratic primary for U.S. Senate this week. We heard from his general election rival, Republican incumbent Cory Gardner, on Wednesday. Audio and a full transcript of that conversation are at CPR.org. Still to come, coronavirus adds fuel to the fire. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. News changes daily, and every day, CPR and NPR bring you reliable, up-to-date information, facts and advice, news about what's happening in your state. You have access to this important coverage thanks to the generosity of members who continue to make voluntary donations. Join them. Sustain CPR for yourself and for the benefit of the thousands of listeners who rely on Colorado Public Radio every day. It's easy at CPR.org. This 4th of July weekend marks the unofficial start of fire season in Colorado. Grasslands and forests have become especially vulnerable as temperatures rise, snowpack melts away, and people, of course, light barbecues, campfires, and fireworks. Wildland firefighting is dangerous. It's grueling work. And then you add coronavirus? Mike Morgan directs the Colorado Division of Fire Protection and Control. And Mike, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. I think it's important to note there's droughts or nearly drought in a lot of the state, uh, especially severe the south, southwest, and on the plains. I guess first off, paint a picture of conditions right now. How concerned are you? 
Well, I'm I'm very concerned. You know, we we started the year with the forecast, early forecasts um, in March and April that we were going to have an average fire season, and and an average fire season that's about 4,500 fires and about 175,000 acres burned in Colorado. So that that makes you nervous anyway. Um, but when all of a sudden the winds came up and the moisture didn't occur, and as you said, the drought conditions started to spread across the state, um, we've all those forecasts have been raised to an above average potential for large fires. So, we're, you know, as you mentioned, you know, when you throw COVID on top of that, we're, we're very concerned about that. Okay. Just to go over those numbers once again, because they can fly by so quickly. An average fire season in Colorado means 4,500 wildfires, 175,000 acres burned. What, what is the figure then for an above average year or the estimate? Well, you're right. That is the average. And and when it gets above average, you can have years like 2018 where we we burn, you know, 450, 500,000 acres. You can have um, other years that are just slightly above average and being, you know, 250,000 acres burned. Um, You know, so so the years vary by how bad the drought gets, as you kind of alluded to, the southern part of the state and the western part of the state for this month. Um, We anticipate above average for those areas where currently it looks like the northern part of the state will be a little bit around average again for that part of the state. Okay. Uh, I'm curious to what extent forest health and dry beetle-killed trees plug into this? Well, there's there's a few factors that are the primary things that drive what what occurs with a wildfire. You have the the drought conditions, as you alluded to, the weather, um, topography, um, and so when you look at the weather and the topography, we know it's a warm and dry um, season. Colorado's topography is what Colorado's topography is, with slopes that impact fire behavior, and and so the other factor that comes into that is the fuel problem. And when you have beetle kill and dead trees. And an overpopulated forest with trees. Um, now the fuel conditions are are creating fire behaviors that we've just we've never seen before. Um, so it creates a significant risk to firefighters, um, to the public, um, and the rapid spread and growth and development of fires in, in areas that we've never seen before. You know, decades ago they called it the asbestos forest, and and now we're seeing these large fires at high elevations. I don't think I get that, calling it the asbestos forest. Help us understand that metaphor. Well, it was kind of a metaphor in the fire service, you know, just talking about, you know, Colorado never, you know, decades ago, we didn't have really large fires in Colorado just because of the the moisture and the health of the forests and all of those things. And we've watched that decade after decade, those numbers, large fires increase uh, to where now we're seeing fire behavior and, and large fires in areas that you know, we just hadn't seen fires for in the past. And, of course, climate change is connected to this, the lack of moisture, the increasing temperatures as important components. I I do want to talk about how COVID-19 plays into this. So first, from a firefighting perspective, I think of firefighting as a fairly um, kind of close together, intimate activity, right? You've got firefighters in close proximity. I think of uh, camps in which they sleep and they eat together. Uh, So that's something to manage, huh? 
Absolutely. Um, Those are things that we've been working with all of our federal and our local partners on to to try to create space uh, that normally we wouldn't have to create. I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, when we're on the fire line and we're doing work um, out there, it is really hard to to not be, um, you know, to to social distance is almost impossible to do your work. Um, We're trying to uh, compensate a little bit more for that, if you will, as you mentioned, our fire camps, which are traditionally, you know, rows and rows of tents and, and mess halls and those types of things to, to feed our firefighters. So we're trying to provide spacing um, so that they have uh, you know, more social distancing capability, additional ability for uh, you know, washing of hands, et cetera. Um, so it's, it's creating some challenges. We're, we're working through those with all of our partners. And um, you know, I, I think uh, ultimately we're just hoping that we can be aggressive with our initial attack and keep fires from going to the long-term events, the extended attack events that last for days or weeks. Ah, I see. That is, COVID-19, in a way, puts an even greater emphasis on snuffing out a fire early so that you are not fighting it over many days, many weeks, and creating the kind of exposure to firefighters to the virus. Do I have that right? Absolutely, absolutely. Now, this year more than ever, you know, I mean, a lot of years, you know, we you, you hear the term uh, fire for resource benefit. And, and we all know, I mean, fire is part of the ecosystem. Yeah, fire yeah. is a tool. It's not bad. Um, it just depends on where it's at, right? So in certain circumstances and conditions, um, we try to utilize fire management for resource benefit um, to put it back on the landscape because there are times when that is good. When you throw COVID into that equation, that is just not the case. So we want to be, um, you know, uh, we want to be aggressive with initial attack to try to prohibit as many of these longer term events mm. um, where we can avoid these fire camps. And, you know, that's that's a risk, obviously, to our firefighters, but it's also an additional risk to to the communities and the public, you know, that we don't we don't want a thousand firefighters in a, in a community creating uh, some kind of a hotspot. Right, a different kind of hotspot, a viral hotspot as opposed to a fire hotspot. Well, then it occurs to me as well that another potential for mass gathering is evacuees having to shelter. You know, they open up gyms and things, community centers. That's something you want to avoid as well in this environment. Absolutely. And and we've been working with the Red Cross and uh, Homeland Security Emergency Management um, and the Division of Insurance here at the state um, um, to kind of work through those details. Uh, you know, traditionally, people would, um, when we we're under evacuation orders, they'd go stay with friends or family. Um, mm-hmm. And in, in this environment, you know, people are, are less willing to do that. Now, we know that, which is creating that mass shelter scenario where you go, that that is not desirable in a, during a pandemic either. So we've been working with all of those partners so that, you know, if and when that occurs, um, that we can do something a little more like a, a hotel type of arrangement. So there's social distancing for people. And of course, we're really trying to coordinate that, too, because we're we're looking at that under certain circumstances for our firefighters as well as to keep, you know, the firefighters and the incident management teams away from that close knit fire camp that you described, um, and we want to make sure that we don't have firefighters and the general public then competing for hotel space, and we want to be very sensitive, obviously, to people that are displaced from their homes, and that we want to keep them as close to uh, their homes and their communities as we can, but also to balance that so that the firefighters aren't traveling, you know, have long commutes to get there to do their work as well. I mean, gosh, the implications of this are kind of mind-boggling, and then you throw in the idea 
that fire budgets are probably suffering like any kind of budget. And that's a whole different can of worms that we don't exactly have time for. But I wanted to acknowledge the realities of that. Mike, thanks for being with us. You bet. Thank you. Mike Morgan directs the Colorado Division of Fire Protection and Control. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a cannabis conversion. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Race is at the core of every issue this election year, from healthcare to the economy. And for a lot of folks, that's too uncomfortable to talk about. But I'm talking about it. I'm Rebecca Carroll, the host of Come Through from WNYC Studios. Join me for conversations with brilliant thinkers and activists, Issa Rae, Don Lemon, Gabrielle Union, and others. Where is this country headed? Find out. Come through. A special series all next week on KRCC and CPR News, weekday afternoons at 1. No classrooms, no youth groups, no sleepovers. For young people in Colorado, the pandemic both causes anxiety and cuts off ways of managing that anxiety. CPR's Sam Brash has the story of one young woman and how she adjusted as best she can. All right, how you doing? I'm all right, I'm all right, just tired. Catherine Aguilar is a 22-year-old who lives here in Commerce City, north of Denver. We meet up in a park near her home to talk about something a lot of people are dealing with, the mental strain of the coronavirus. Right now it's definitely hard, um, especially with what I'm going through right now with the whole selling the house, uh, not having a job, whole pandemic, anxiety and depression and just everything wrong with me. Aguilar has been looking for a job since before the economic downturn, and it's not getting any easier. No one's hiring, but I'm looking. Uh I am looking. And the house, right now she says she lives with seven family members. Some of them have diabetes, so everyone has tried to stay home and avoid the virus. Um, It's been kind of hectic. We all just need our own place. (laughs) All of that's added up to plenty of anxiety for Aguilar. But I wanted to talk to her because she's somebody who's had ways to deal with mental health challenges. Or at least she did before the pandemic started. I've had depression before. I've had anxiety. And it's no fun. (laughs) Like, let me tell you, it's not simple to get out of the mindset. This is Catherine way back in March. We spoke in her home next to a Dia de los Muertos shrine for her dad, Umberto. It's decorated with all of his favorite things. Loved his coffee with um, cookies called Surtido Rico. Mm-hmm. Umberto died almost two years ago. His long history with respiratory issues had landed him in the ICU. For a while, it seemed like he was getting better. Then uh, we went to the room and he just, he wasn't breathing. That's when I heard my mom yell out his name and then I knew. This is when Aguilar says she fell into the full grip of depression. To get through it, she started therapy and medication, but she also relied on her own art. The depression, I either write or I draw to like calm me down. And also music. Aguilar plays bass in an all-female worship band for her church. It's a Spanish-speaking congregation called Pentecostals of Aurora. I watched her play months ago, and after the service, she told me how it helps her keep her spirits up. It lets me breathe here, just be present. She added the church has also helped her stay connected to her dad, who became more religious as he grew older. But for the last few months, there hasn't been any church. 
It's a common story about the pandemic. It's caused plenty of reason for distress, but also cut off the ways people deal with that distress. Today, Aguilar says they're allowing services again, but they don't offer the same refuge. When she rejoined the band, she mostly worried about getting sick. It was stressful. I'm not going to lie. It was very stressful. I was going to say, no, it took a little bit. No, it added more. Her struggle right now is about feeling helpful. That's partially why she wants a job so badly. But Catherine also brought her mom, Holiday, to the park. And she says it's only been good to have Catherine at her side. Of course, she jokes with her daughter. I don't know about you, but it's been great for me. It's maybe not the exact validation Aguilar wants, but she says it'll do for now. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. In these stressful times, are more people turning to cannabis to relax? Anne-Marie Awad wanted to find out. She's the host of CPR's podcast On Something, about life after legalization. And her quest led her to a nonprofit hotline called LEAF411 and a nurse who never expected to become a resource for people in need. Since this whole pandemic thing began, we've popped into your feeds periodically to try and better understand how people are using drugs like marijuana right now. Anxiety, boredom, loneliness. We don't have the data yet, but it feels like, well, anecdotally, marijuana use is up. I have to imagine this means there are more first-timers out there in places where weed is legal or not legal. First-timers with a lot of questions. And the thing is, it is hard to find reliable information about weed. It's a big reason why we started making this show. Marijuana is still federally illegal. And even though we've said many times on this show, hey, you know, go talk to your doctor, I know it's not that simple, even without a pandemic going on. Well, what if I told you that now you could simply dial a nurse? People are just Googling pain, sleep, and cannabis, marijuana, or pot, or whatever word, the keyword they use, that's how they're finding us. This is Catherine Golden. She's been a nurse for more than 20 years. I'm a typical Western-trained nurse who worked in OR, medical surge, all of that. I was extremely extremely judgmental about cannabis. I voted against it when it was here in Colorado. I never liked it personally. But four years ago, her brother-in-law was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Complete shock to our entire family because he was a non-smoker. He was just a businessman. He wasn't in any kind of field that had toxins or anything like that. Two kids graduating high school, and my family was completely devastated, especially, of course, my sister, who I'm very close to my family. We're all very close. We're a Hispanic family, very, very tight-knit. He was given the option to incorporate cannabis into his treatment, but only if he tried other treatments first. And Catherine says doctors were clear. They did not know anything about cannabis as a medicine. Her brother-in-law was given two to five years to live. I said, well, while he's doing that, I'm going to look into the validity of this marijuana. 
think it's a bunch of nothing, but I'll look into it. So that's how my journey started. I, I looked at all our typical publications that we look at as clinicians. You know, we look at white papers that look at actual studies, whether they're animal or lab models. And then I started seeing, wait a minute, how am I finding all of this science um, when I'm barely hearing that people are using it medicinally? Around this time, Catherine was actually retired from nursing. But she still felt, well, pissed. It actually made me angry that there's something out there that could potentially help people with all kinds of ailments and, and, and with the safety profile it has. The safety profile means no known lethal doses. So anything else you take, even if it's a bottle of Advil, you can destroy your intestinal lining. Tylenol, you know, you can destroy your liver, you know, so those are over the counter. But when you look at the cannabis plant, I was shocked that the safety of it was so high that you could just, there was not really a lot that you could do to harm yourself with it. Since his cancer diagnosis, Catherine's brother-in-law has tried several different treatments. Immunotherapy, for starters, which is when you're given medications that attempt to push your immune system to attack cancer cells. This caused him to suffer liver failure. Now he's using cannabis in conjunction with gene therapy, which is still considered an experimental treatment. Actually, so is cannabis. His doctors are trying to see if high doses could shrink his tumor. So far, Catherine says it's shrunk just once over the last four years. The start of his cancer journey was the start of Catherine's journey into cannabis nursing. At this time, like we said, she was retired, but she actually decided to jump back into nursing for a year and a half as an actual cannabis nurse. She worked at one of these integrative medicine practices, one of these ones where they offer massage therapy, acupuncture, and other types of alternative medicine, including cannabis. She stresses that places like this are rare. Usually when someone goes to get a medical marijuana card, they fork over their fee. And then you go in and all they want to know is, can I check one of these boxes of a qualifying condition? Do you have an ailment that fits in here? And if it does, great, here's your card. But don't ask me about how to use anything. And we hear stories about all that all the time. As Catherine gradually became a walking cannabis encyclopedia, her friends and family started to come to her with all of their questions. So that's when I started thinking, you know, I want to educate people. And my first thought was to outfit an RV, gut it all, turn it into a library and sit in front of every dispensary with a sign that said, hey, come come to me. I'm a nurse. I can help you. <laughs> that was Clone my first idea. Hundreds of yes. times. <laughs> yeah. So that was my idea. When I, t- I told my husband, he was like, well, how about a phone instead of an RV? And I said, oh, OK. After uh, putting the brakes on the RV idea, Catherine's husband suggested making the hotline pay per minute. She did not like it. She mulled it over for a few months. I had the dream that it was just going to be this beautiful uh, combination of 
public and private partnership. I thought, you know, the minute we go to our senators and we go to our legislators, they're going to say, yes, this is a public good. This is a need. Here you go. Here's some money. And then we go to our cannabis industry and they're going to say, yes, here, this is a need. Here you go. And that's, well, not exactly what happened. LEAF 411 did get off the ground, but with no government funding at all. It didn't end up being pay per minute. In fact, they're a nonprofit funded primarily by philanthropic giving from the cannabis industry. They answer questions by phone, email, or live chat. I just was Googling anything that I could, cannabis RN, dispensary nurse, and that just popped up and I just signed on with an email. This is Whitney. She has always been really enthusiastic about plants. She got her degree in biology, and she's a huge gardener. She has a tattoo sleeve all down one arm of just flowers that she and her mother grew together. So it kind of made sense when Whitney went to work as a grower for a few Denver-based dispensaries way back when Colorado only had legal medical marijuana. This meant that she was growing plants directly for medical marijuana patients as part of what's called the caregiver model. Patients would come in, fill out some paperwork, and then come back and talk with a bud tender. This was in 2009. Working on the other side of a curtain, Whitney could hear things that worried her. When one of the patients said something about their seizures and their pain, how everything wasn't being met pharmaceutically and cannabis was the only thing that was helping and they didn't understand why and they wanted to know the science behind it and our bud tender came up blank. He had no answer for them. I wanted to be that person that could explain to the consumer what was happening in his body. And that's Mm -hmm. what struck the light bulb for me. I was like, I can do that. So Whitney tried to imagine some way to do that. I mean, it would mean much more than just becoming a really, really good bud tender. I woke up one Saturday morning and thought, well, why not nursing? She started nursing school in 2011, and while she was in school, sought out training in cannabis medicine. After school, as nurses often do, she went and she worked in hospitals, which she still does now. She works in operating rooms and sometimes as a traveling nurse. And these days, if you dial up LEAF 411 most mornings, she will be the one answering your phone call. Thank you for calling LEAF 411. How did you hear about us? We are not using her last name because she's worried about losing her hospital work for good. If I were to even discuss cannabis as an alternative, punitive action could be taken against me. Catherine, Whitney's boss, says nurses often worry that they could lose their licenses for this. Before I got into cannabis nursing, I was retired. I was done. You know, I'm raising a child and I'm fortunate to have a husband that could financially support us. And I was done. And then cannabis came. And I'm like, Mm. oh, my gosh, I have to get into this. But it was easier for me because, God forbid, I lost my license. I still had my husband. You know, it would be detrimental to me and it would be it's my identity would be taken away, but yet I could financially survive. I wouldn't lose my livelihood. And not everybody can say that. So the nurses that are on my team that were working out on the field in the field as well, they have that livelihood that they need to protect. Mm -hmm. So being a schedule one drug, we are at risk all the time. And the thing is, 
There are real moments when cannabis is part of the job, even in hospitals. Whitney remembers this coming up earlier this year while she was prepping a patient for surgery. The patient disclosed to myself and the anesthesiologist that they had been using cannabis as an alternative for their pain relief. This matters because they were about to put this guy under anesthesia for surgery. Regular cannabis users can have a higher tolerance to common anesthesia drugs like propofol. And just giving this guy a higher dose of propofol could be dangerous. I felt comfortable taking the anesthesiologist aside and saying, hey, look, I've been working on this. Would you feel comfortable if I discussed some issues, you know, some things that I've learned with them? Um, And they were totally open to it. But Whitney says it's a case by case basis. Sometimes it doesn't go this well. Right around this time, she was Googling ways to be a cannabis nurse and found Catherine's hotline. I immediately emailed Catherine. I was like, hey, here I am. This is me. I've done all of this. I've not been a nurse for very long, but I'm very passionate about cannabis. It's who I am as a person, who I uh, built myself to be. And we've just started this, you know, relationship from there. So everyone kept saying, boy, you must be getting a ton of phone calls right now because everyone's in their homes. And it was actually opposite. Our call volume sunk completely. But in April and May, calls started to pick back up again. Now, us nosy podcasters would love to play some of those calls for you, but we actually can't. The conversations that callers have with Leaf 411 nurses are anonymous and confidential. But Catherine and Whitney can tell us about some of the calls that they've answered. My first caller was a senior saying, I bought this package of edibles a few months ago. Do you think it has COVID on it? The rest of them have been, I've got anxiety. What would be the best thing for me right now? And then it went into the smoking um, part of it. I've been looking at this product. Can you help me tell me a little bit more about it? I don't want to hurt my lungs. I'm told, you know, even our dispensaries are telling some of our consumers, yeah, you know, if you can switch to a tincture and edible during this time, we want to really keep our lungs pristine if we can. I don't want intoxication, but yet I am having really bad muscle spasms from my sciatic pain. What can help me without causing intoxication? I even had someone come through chat that had overconsumed. He ate an entire chocolate bar <gasps> thinking that, well, I smoke every day. Um, he's like, I live with my parents. I smoke every day. They know what I use. I'm not going to smoke anymore because of the coronavirus. And I went and I just thought I can handle an entire chocolate bar. And he goes, I'm in trouble. Can you think of a question that you've gotten recently that has like stumped you? This one. (laughs) (laughs) Catherine and Whitney both said they feel like they're fielding more calls lately from first timers. The data they have from before the pandemic shows that people over 65 already make up more than 40 percent of their callers. Almost a third of all of them are retirees. Now, Seniors have been the fastest-growing demographic of cannabis users in the country for the last several years. That's exactly why Whitney is delighted to get so many calls from seniors. Yes, ma'am, absolutely, because they are reading more and educating themselves on the adverse effects of the um, narcotics that they've been taking or the other medications that they're taking, and and they're like, well, hey, what, what do I have to lose? It's a challenge. Whitney says these people are the ones who are most likely to have multiple conditions, and they're most likely to not want to get high. 
it's a big change of pace from what she's used to. Something as simple as a bandage change just doesn't excite me as much as, hey, I have A, B, and C going on. I've got pain. I've got inflammation. I've got a cut on my arm. I don't know. How, <laughs> how, how can cannabis help me with this? Whitney left the cannabis industry to find some way to practice medicine that incorporated cannabis. She went into nursing. She worked in hospitals, thinking it would be a long time before she could achieve that goal. And then the pandemic happened. The hospital is my bread and butter, but the LEAF 411 is my passion. So I'm having kind of this internal struggle between do I go back to the hospital and keep the bread and butter coming through, or do Mm. I keep doing my passion and take these significant pay differences? I think what strikes me the most about all of this is that nurses like Catherine and Whitney keep trying to find ways to help, no matter what. And they're not the only ones. So actually, yeah, we, we, we have more nurses than I can employ. A lot of nurses were furloughed. A lot of nurses had their hours cut. And I had people knocking at our door saying, how can we help? But they need uh, actually a paying job. And for nonprofits, you know, it's all about funding. Nurses, man. Recently, I learned that 2020 is the year of the nurse, according to the World Health Organization. What a year to be a nurse, right? If you're on the front lines, your job is riskier and more traumatic than ever before. And if you're not, you're likely furloughed or even unemployed. But Catherine, Whitney, and many others, in true nurse fashion, just try to find the next best way to help. And it might seem like a small thing, a hotline you could call if you are too high or if you aren't sure how much CBD is in your foot cream. But these particular nurses are injecting much-needed facts into people's lives in an area that has always been clouded by misinformation, urban legend, and now marketing. And we know facts are life-saving. Who is and who is not an essential worker is determined by your government, sure. But does a nurse need to be busting through walls, helping COVID-19 patients to be essential to someone, somewhere? Couldn't she just pick up the phone? How can I help you today? <laughs> On Something, CPR's podcast about life after legalization with Anne-Maria Wad. This was a bonus episode. Season two starts July 14th with music legend and cannabis lover Willie Nelson. You can subscribe to the show for free and hear the season two trailer right now at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Finally today, a 4th of July 1st, as far as we know, the Fort Collins Symphony believes it's the only full orchestra in the country performing live this holiday weekend. That's according to music director Wes Kenny. They will play a live Independence Day concert at one of the country's remaining drive-in movie theaters. Kenny plans a full patriotic program, similar to what they've done for past July 4th concerts. Musicians will be physically distanced on a stage in front of the screen. Kenny described the setup to CPR Classical's David Ginder. The Holiday Twin actually has two screens, and we're going to be in front of the larger of those two. 
cars will be set up just like they're going to be watching a movie. There is a tent that Flex Production is putting up, so it'll cover the orchestra, and that tent will be lit up inside. And by the way, even though the orchestra is not necessarily going to be broadcast up on the screen, when we play the traditional 1812 overture at the end of the concert, there is actually going to be a virtual fireworks show. So people will be listening probably both through the air and through their radios tuned to the theater broadcast. That's right. Well, if you haven't been to a drive-in theater lately, and I have to admit that I have not. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it all comes through um, your FM, you dial basically an FM station, and it's closed circuit broadcast to it. So the sound should be, uh, should be pretty good, Yeah. Uh, even though it's an outdoor venue. Wes Kenny also explained how an orchestra manages to rehearse these days. So, you know, what's a rehearsal going to look like for the Fort Collins Symphony? Well, the musician is going to get to the door and they're going to be asked a questionnaire in terms of how they're feeling. They're going to have their temperature taken and we'll be uh, spacing the orchestra. There's going to be six feet between each string player. Mm-hmm. All the percussion, the string players will be wearing masks. The winds will be wearing masks of all time unless they are playing. And following the 90-minute concerts, a movie, of course, Ghostbusters. At CPR.org, find a list of other 4th of July music events in person and virtual. Head over to the Classical section. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. Our executive producer is Carl Bielek. Our producers include Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, Avery Lill, and Alexandra McMahon. Thanks as well to our production team, Michael Hughes, Shane Rumsey, and Natasha Watts. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. CPR News.